Let's open the Word of God to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. We have two chapters before us here. The fourth chapter is a vision of God in glory given to our brother John. And chapter 5 is a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ arriving there after his ascension and where he is crowned Lord of all and placed at God's right hand as Lord and Christ forever and priest after the order of Melchizedek and king of the universe and everything else that's involved because that's when all the choirs of heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is sang his praise and gave him all the glory that had never been given to a man before because the man Christ Jesus was now in a situation and position of power. But that's the fifth chapter. The book of the Revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, which he in turn gave to his servant John to show him things which must shortly come to pass, has several panoramic views of the time stretching from the Lord's first coming to his second coming. One or more of those is contained in chapters 6 through 11 as the seven seals are ripped off the book that was in the hand of him that sat on the throne, and then the seventh seal opens up trumpets and so forth. And you get to chapter 12, it starts all over again with another panoramic view from the first coming of Jesus Christ, the man-child caught up into heaven to his final return and judgment. And so the book of Revelation runs in cycles, showing, similar to the book of Daniel, Daniel runs in cycles and has different views of different time frames. And these two take us back before the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ so that God gets a, John gives, gets a vision of God in His glory before the Lamb of God is there in His presence and Jesus Christ is at His right hand and we see Him getting that position in chapter 5 and then proceeds the things which must shortly come to pass as those seals are taken off the book. I'm not going to apologize to you, but I'm sorry if any are disappointed. Revelation is a book of prophecy. And the Bible deals rather plainly with prophecies, and it deals rather plainly with parables, that they are to be appreciated and studied for the general lesson, not for the details. So that when we come to a chapter like this, what we want to do is get the overall impression of what it's like to be in the presence of God rather than get hung up on all the details. That's right. We do not want to do that. We want to see the overall impression that God wants to give us of a view of His glory and what it's like to be in His presence and, and to be reminded of several facts about His nature and attributes that are contained here and some facts about the closeness of the church to Him in heaven, which we're going to see as we go down through this chapter. I could take you, but I don't want to take the time to Joel chapter 2 and tell you about the the moon stopping shining, the moon turning into blood, the sun stopping shining, the, the stars falling from heaven, and show you a number of verses consecutive in order that describe all of these things, and then come over to Acts chapter 2, and have Peter tell us that fishermen from Galilee speaking in tongues were the entire fulfillment of that prophecy. Right. Amen. And if you would have been in Joel chapter 2 and got all hung up on the details of a blood moon like John Hagee 
out of San Antonio, Texas, then you would have missed the entire lesson. The entire lesson is the general picture that we are to see from God's Word pictures. The Bible tells us in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10 that God's prophets use similitudes. That's a takeoff of the word simile, which means that a comparison is being made in a metaphorical way. A word picture is what Revelation is. A word picture is what Joel 2 was. A word picture is what Daniel has in his chapters of his visions. My dear brethren, why did God create you? For His pleasure, according to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. For God's pleasure, God created you. Why did He save you? For you to know Him. He created you for His glory and His pleasure, and He saved you for you to know Him. Because without salvation, your dark, rebellious, hateful heart would stand in enmity against God. You would hide in the trees of the garden and run from Him and choose rather to follow and obey the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. John chapter 17 and verse 3 puts it this way, which is very enlightening about why God saves any. John chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus Christ in His high priestly prayer said, and this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. God saved us for us to know Him and His Son. God did not save you because He felt sorry about how much pain you were going to endure in the lake of fire. God saved you for you to know Him for His greater glory and His greater pleasure of revealing Himself to creatures that had no right to ever be in His presence enjoyably again. Thank you, Lord. This is important for us to remember as we look into Revelation chapter 4 is why would God open a door into heaven for us to see Him? It's because that's why He created you. He is revealing Himself. He is an infinitely happy and perfectly happy and formed being, not formed, but chosen in all the details of His independent nature to be above all creatures. But He has chosen to reveal Himself to certain creatures. And they aren't His highest creatures. They're some of His lower creatures. And He's chosen to create us, and He's chosen to save us, that we might know Him. That He might reveal Himself to us and show a degree and level of love not seen or known before in the universe. Showing His love toward us. A vision of God's glory should greatly affect you, like it did Moses in Exodus chapters 32 through 34, like it did Job in the last few chapters of Job. Oh, Job said, I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Though Job did not see him yet. Job just heard him better so that it was like he saw him. And I'm not going to be able to show him to your audible eyes, but we're going to be able to read some things about him that I hope will be as effective as God's words were to Job. As Isaiah saw him and said, Here am I, send me, in Isaiah chapter 6. As Ezekiel saw him at the commencement of his ministry. As Peter saw him, which our brother Zach has referred to today already, when the Lord told him to cast his nets again, And they brought in a great draft of fishes, and Peter fell at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. That sounds very much like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, doesn't it? 
If you really see a vision of God, you're going to realize your sinfulness. John, in the first chapter of this book of the Bible, fell at his feet as dead when he saw the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that these chapters are not all consecutive in this book. They're not all consecutive in the book of Daniel. They're not all consecutive in most of the prophets, especially the prophets with a larger number of chapters. I want you to know that in Revelation chapter 1, John has already met the glorified Lord Jesus Christ, but in chapter 5 he's asking, he's weeping much, because it's for the view for your sake. It's retracing steps. John knew all about the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, but in Revelation chapter 5, he's not there yet, and he, along with the rest, are waiting for his arrival. But let's not go to chapter 5 yet. We want to be here in chapter 4. Our goal is to stand in awe of him. Psalm 4.4 Stand in awe and sin not. Our goal is to delight in Him. Psalm 37.4 Delight thyself also in the Lord. And our goal is to hear His call and to say, Here am I, send me, in Isaiah 6. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto Him, to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. And He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John signified it. The word in Hosea 12.10 is that God's prophets use similitudes. Those are simile comparisons. Metaphorical comparisons. Similes. Similitudes. Word pictures. Here in Revelation 1, before we can even get to verse 2, we're told that God uses signs because He signified things. And to signify things is not to use express language, but again, to use obscure language, figurative language, metaphorical language, or, as I am saying to you, word pictures. And when you get a word picture of something, you don't want to fuss about all of its little details, or you're going to be seriously destroyed in Bible prophecy. You will never be able to figure out any prophecy, because there are some details that are withheld from our sight in the obscurity of the word picture. It's just like a parable. If we get too hung up on the chemical composition of the oil that the Good Samaritan poured into the wounded Jew's wounds, you're never going anywhere. There's only one thing we want to see from the Good Samaritan. And Jesus told us the one thing we want to see. Who is your neighbor? When the Bible says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, who is your neighbor? That is all you want to see. If you start fussing about the combination of oil and wine must have some therapeutic benefits, and so you start applying it to yourself externally when you've got a cold, it's not going to work. Get the lesson. The lesson here is the throne room of God. Before the Lamb of God is there and the closeness that Almighty God is to His church. You're going to see these things clearly. We're going to know that the attribute that is very important for His worship is His holiness. We're going to find out that His sovereignty is so great, He's created all things for His own pleasure. And that means the suffering of men in this world and the suffering of men after this life are for the pleasure of God. And until you realize that, you haven't got the big message of Revelation chapter 4. 
We could spend more time on prophetic language, but I don't think I need to. I hope that the church remembers it. It is the lack of remembering prophetic language and its sign language and word pictures that causes so much error in the minds of so many Christians. Like explaining a parable, if we give dogmatic meanings to each sign or symbol, we enter into human fantasy and we're going to ruin the lesson. Revelation 4 has many signs and symbols that we should avoid speculating about, like door, throne, one sat, jasper, emerald rainbow, 24 elders, white clothes, crowns, seven lamps, seven spirits of God, four beasts, and so forth. Those are all symbols. They're signs. And if we get hung up on them, we're going to get ourselves into serious trouble. Are we going to get hung up on the leopard? that comes up out of the sea in Daniel chapter 7, and the bear with three ribs in its mouth that raises itself up on one side. Thank you, Lord, that we're able to figure out some of those aspects of some of those symbols. But if I were to ask you to tell me the ten horns that grew out of the fourth beast, what are they? Every commentator that's lived in the history of the world differs on the ten horns that grew out of the fourth beast. Because it doesn't matter what the ten horns are. We know what they are in total. They're the nations of Europe after the demise of the Roman Empire. And whether you can list them, date them, as to when they entered the ten or left the ten, it doesn't matter. And if you still haven't got the message, I'm going to have to come up to this point in just a moment, so I might as well do it right now. What are the twelve tribes of Israel? Because I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, out of the fourteen names that are given in the Bible, which twelve are you going to go with? Then I'm going to ask you who the twelve apostles are. Because Revelation chapter 21 tells us there's twelve tribes and there's twelve apostles. Now who are the twelve apostles? Don't you cut out my my beloved brother Paul. Don't you cut out James the Lord's brother. Do you understand where I'm going? To remind you as we go into this. There's 15 men that are specifically identified as apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Judas didn't make the cut for the 15. But you still have a bunch of names, and what are you going to do? Because we all know that the 12 apostles refer to the apostles. Because they were ordinarily, and in the beginning, chosen as 12. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord. I'm sorry to have to do this. I'd rather just look in the throne room of God. But I want to remind you about what we're about to do. Please don't put a two-edged sword in Jesus' mouth. Please. The two-edged sword is just His words cut in both directions. His words are wonderful. His words are precious. They're perfect. They're logically and rhetorically perfect. But He doesn't have a two-edged sword coming out of His mouth. That's a symbol and a sign of the book of Revelation. Please do not put stables and pooping horses in my heaven. Please do not think heaven is a sugar cube that is 375 miles per side in height, width, and depth. The 12,000 furlongs of Revelation chapter 21. Please reject blood six feet deep in an age of drones. You say, you're tearing up the book of... No, I'm not. I'm reminding you that it's a book of prophecy. And if you go into that book thinking it's Dick and Jane, which is the last book that you read with intelligence, and I love every one of you and I love me too, 
because we want to love, we want to know the truth of God, but please do not turn the book of Revelation into Dick and Jane. You might see Dick and Jane in a picture and they're chasing a ball that Spot's running after, but that is not the book of Revelation. There are word pictures here, and I want you to delight in the word pictures, but I'm saving you from a lot of error. It's men who like to get into these things and pick on the details that lose the message, the lesson, and the truth of God. And let's see if we can find some truth in this chapter without doing such foolish things with the signs here. When the first verse tells us it's a book of signs, we want to be careful with this book of the Bible. We'll foolishly miss God's glory and His praise if we get too hung up on possible interpretations of some of the details. Verse 1, you've already read this before, so I don't have to read the whole chapter to you to start with. After this... I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Revelation chapters 1 gives us John meeting the glorified Jesus and explaining a little bit about the seven stars and the seven... um, Candlesticks. Then chapters 2 and 3 are Jesus Christ giving to John warnings for the seven churches of Asia. After this, John looks and a door is opened in heaven. Heaven doesn't have a door. A door was opened to let a vision happen to John so that John could take a peek into heaven and see what it looked like there and we're going to get some word pictures of what heaven looked like before the Lord Jesus Christ arrived. After this I looked and a door was opened. If God doesn't give us a vision, you're not going to see anything. I want to remind you that John got this vision because he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, chapter 1 and verse 10. We want to be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. We want to be in the Spirit when we come into His sanctuary. And we want to be in the Spirit whenever we read the Bible. Because if you read the Bible in the flesh, it is a closed book to you. There is no amount of intelligence and there's no computer coming that is going to be able to figure out the Bible. It is a spiritual book revealed by the Spirit of God. So that even David, in Psalm 119 and verse 18, had to pray, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. The the study of hermeneutics is not a a science study. It's an art. Because the, the primary and fundamental rules of being able to interpret the Bible are subjective and personal of God's dealings with a man, not objective and scientific that you can reduce to some computer program. It's a spiritual book, and it uses spiritual terms. This would be the third heaven where God dwells, as the Bible describes heavens. Paul would tell us that when he went and got a vision that John's going to get here, it was the third heaven. The first heaven is where the birds fly. The second heaven is where the planets and stars are. And the third heaven is the presence of God in the Bible order of things. The first voice that spoke to John was the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1. And now that voice is sounding to him like a trumpet sound. And it said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Things that are coming in the future of this world are all known to God. 
The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong unto us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law. Heaven is up. So the words have to be, come up hither. Heaven's always up in the Bible. Because you've got the first heaven, the second, and then the third. It's the things that are down, that are in the center of the earth or below the earth, where hell is. The devil and the hell, and devil and hell come up, and God is above us, and we have to go up into heaven, and so John is taken up. Verse two, and immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now this in the Spirit is different from chapter 1, verse 10 in the Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 10 in the Spirit is being in the, in the Spirit of God, having God dwelling in you, you being at peace with God. That's loving God in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit. That's a, that's a function that you ought to have in your life every day, that you are walking with the Spirit of God. He's not grieved. He's not quenched. And that was John in chapter 1 and verse 10. But now he's out of the body. I was in the Spirit. And he's taken into a vision. The Apostle Paul, when he described a similar event in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body. And he repeats himself a couple of times over there because all he knew was he was taken someplace and whether his body actually came along with him or not, he wasn't sure. But you know what? It didn't matter. What matters is what John in the Spirit got to see and what he wrote down for us. I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. A throne is an obvious symbol of authority of a monarchical dictator. A monarch is sitting there. That's what a throne is for, showing the authority and power and position of a king in a monarchy. Heaven without God's throne would be a terrible place indeed, wouldn't it? When we have Isaiah chapter 6 open to us, We saw a throne there, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. The throne wasn't empty. It's always been filled with God himself. However, John looks and sees one that sat on the throne. But he doesn't tell us a single thing about him. We don't know what color hair he has. We don't know how big he is. Because this is all symbolism. This is a sign of God's authority in heaven because it's the best that you would be able to relate to and it's hard for us even to relate to this because we've never seen a monarch on a throne. But to nations that grew up with the wealthiest, most powerful man who had the power of life and death in a king, him sitting on a throne was one impressive display of authority and power. God is impossible to see. He's the invisible God. He's an infinite spirit. He fills heaven and earth. How are you going to put him on a throne? That's the way the apostle would, would reason in other places. And I don't want to take away the beauty of Revelation chapters 4 or 5 and other chapters from you, but I want you to be realistic with it so that you don't end up creating pictures that, re, that you, only you as a man are able to imagine. This is beyond that. That's why there's no description. God once told Moses, you know, when I appeared in Mount Sinai, there was no similitude. There was just fire coming down from heaven. And he said, I I gave no appearance of myself. And if he'd have given an appearance of himself, what would the Israelites have done? They would have made some statue to it and worshipped it instead of worshipping him. 
But John is presented with a throne of authority and power, and there's one sitting on it representing the presence of God on that throne in verse 2. So there's one there representing God. We're not told about Him. We've already seen the Lord Jesus Christ, eye color, what His feet looked like, what He was wearing, hair color, face color, what was coming out of His mouth. That was in chapter 1. But when it comes to God here in chapter 4, there's nothing said. Or somebody would come along with a Bible storybook and try to make a picture of God. God is an infinite, invisible spirit. And you should tremble before Him. He's not confined to space like you are. What are we? Just bags of water? The, 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 the skin of the bag being skin? We stink and we soon corrupt. And when the Spirit's taken away from us, it's ugly in a hurry. But He is an invisible, infinite Spirit that fills heaven and earth. But there are places where He can be worshipped more closely than others like between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant in Israel, or like with this door that allowed John to see a throne set in heaven and one sitting on it. One of the best and first things you can ever do to learn about God's glory is to learn His dominion and His sovereign rule. Because sitting on a throne means He has dominion as a king, and that's one of the first things we want to learn about Him. One of the worst and last things you can ever do is to search your own glory. Any, t- any seconds or sentences that you take to describe yourself in any admirable terms is a waste of your time because it's corrupting your own mental abilities to think because none of it is true. Just get over yourself and get into the throne room of God and see Him high and lifted up. Amen. And then you're going to woe the day that you ever thought highly of yourself. Lord, help us. Do you know this throne here? in Hebrews chapter 4, is called the throne of grace. That we can approach the throne of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God. Verse 3, He that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. So what we're told is, he looked like an opaque, impure variety of quartz that could be red, yellow, brown, green, or other dull colors. He looked like a sardine stone, a precious stone of blood red or sometimes flesh color, consistent with jasper here. The general impression left by these two stones and their colors is that he was in regal robes of a red-like color. Be content with the description. Should we start to analyze the composition of these minerals to find out about sardine stones and jasper? You're going nowhere except to confusion. It's simply a general picture of the color of what John saw on the throne. He was to look upon like. You know what the word like means? Do you remember from the second grade? You were taught similes. So this prophet is using similitudes, just like the Old Testament prophets did. Brethren, if there was information to be gathered from Jasper, we would get someone in this church assigned to the task of of figuring out what Jasper is trying to tell us. There's no explanation in the Word of God. The prophet just runs on in his description. And we don't waste our time by looking into the composition of Jasper. We just want to get a general idea of the color, that there is red, scarlet, royal robes 
presented in the view of him that's sitting on that throne. And we're not told any details. The general impression is all that we are left with. Be content with it. You know, Michelangelo's creation of Adam that has God laying over on a cloud and reaching out his hand and forming Adam, that's just Michelangelo's fantasy of what old and young sodomites look like. If you don't know that about Michelangelo, you need to learn that about Michelangelo, and you need to figure that out from his statue of David and from his painting, The Creation of Adam, to figure out what he's drawing. But the Bible doesn't have anything like that. It just has this red-robed, scarlet, royal presence sitting on the throne of God. And there's a rainbow circling the throne of God, and the standout color of the rainbow is green. And that's verse 3. He that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. That's pretty impressive. You know, I get phone calls when there's a, a, a rainbow in Greenville County because we ask each other to go outside and see the beauty of a rainbow. This rainbow has emerald or the color of, the, of an emerald coming out in it or green dominating the rainbow and it's round about the throne. Let's get to verse 4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now we're getting a little more specific. We've got some men here. They're not called angels. They're not called seraphims. They're not called cherubim. They're called elders. And there's 24 of them, and they're sitting on seats, and they've got white raiment, and they've got crowns of gold. And they're sitting round about the throne. That's exciting. They're not far away from the throne. They're right around the throne. These little things of where they're located are important. Let's try to figure out the elders. If we were to go to the fifth chapter and read ahead a little bit, we're going to find out that these elders represent the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 5, they sing the song of the redeemed. So they're saved, elect. But there's only 24 of them. Where's the multitude that no man can number? That's in chapter 7. It's represented by these 24. Because look at the language they use when you look over at chapter 5. In verse 9, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Are there only 24 kindreds, tongues, peoples, and nations on this planet in the history of the world? Or are there a few more than 24? These 24 represent that number. They're not called thrones here, but they're called thrones elsewhere. They're called seats here. But by comparing the Bible with the Bible, we find out that they're thrones. And these people that are, these 24 elders sitting on them in verse 10 say that God has made them kings and priests. That's chapter 5 in verse 10. You need to first of all recognize that the 24 represent the whole church of God in a very definite way because of the way they sing the song of the redeemed in Chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. There is no other group or representation in heaven in these two chapters of the church of God but these 24 elders. 
and something else in a moment. Elsewhere, the church triumphant in heaven is seen as an innumerable multitude that no man can number, like chapter 7. Now, the Old Testament under David had 24 courses. So, some men have thought, this is a representation of the 24 courses that David arranged for the maintenance of the temple that Solomon would build. There were 24 priests that served a couple weeks at a time for their course. You can still read about that course when you find that about Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. Also, David took Asaph's and the other singers and musicians of Israel and broke them into 24 courses. So this could be priests and prayer, priests and praise, prayer and praise, representing the 24 courses of Israel. But to have the 24 courses of Israel in the New Testament, at the end of the New Testament, when Jesus Christ is going to be there, seems a little weak to me. There's another way that we can look at 24. And when we go over to Revelation chapter 21, we find out that the holy city, and when you read about the holy city in the book of Revelation, the holy city is the church. You say, but it says it's a city. Yes, and it says it's a bride. And yes, it says it's a woman. But it's the, it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that church has 12 gates, and the gates are the 12 tribes of Israel, and it has 12 foundations, and the 12 foundations are the 12 apostles. So when I read that in Revelation 21, cheating ahead by 17 chapters, I come back here, and I choose to make the 24 the representation of the whole church of God, the Old Testament part with the 12 tribes, the New Testament part with the 12 apostles, because that's what the Holy Spirit does in chapter 21. It's very important that you understand that these elders represent the whole church out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people because of what we can read about them in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. This gets exciting. In this respect, now this is somewhat small, but uh, it's exciting to me. If it's 12 tribes of Israel, and if it's 12 apostles, and all the apostles were taken from what nation? The Jews. So the 24 elders, you know, are 24 Jews. Now they're symbols, so don't get carried away. Don't try to name the 24. If you try to name the 24, you've got 14 tribes and 15 apostles. That's 29. You're in serious trouble. It's a symbol. But the symbol is all Jewish. And yet when they sing, they sing that they have been saved and redeemed out of every nation, including this one. Out of every family, including yours. Out of every language, including ours. Praise His glorious name. Because those 24, though the Bible, even as late as chapter 21, has 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles, they're singing about Gentiles getting saved. Because Gentiles make up the larger part of the church. When you go to Revelation chapter 7 and find the church there split into its Jewish segment and its Gentile segment, there's 144,000 that have been sealed from the Jews, and there's a multitude that no man can number from the Gentiles. Thank you, Lord, that He saved us. And these elders are representing us just fine because the church is one. There's only one church. It was the church in the wilderness, and that church went through Reformation and became the church of the New Testament by some changes in its ordinances. We don't want to get any pickier with the details than we do with parables or anything else. 
Do not make these elders literal or you're going to be in trouble and you're going to cut yourself out of heaven. Because there's no other group there to represent you unless these 12 represent you. And they say that they represent you in chapter 5. They were clothed in white raiment. They had on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had on, they had crowns of gold on their heads, which represent the authority and honor that were given to them. And in the Bible, a crown is mentioned as a crown of life and a crown of righteousness. Eternal life is granted to the saints of God, the saints of the Most High, and they're clothed in His righteousness. So much different than those, that man in Matthew chapter 22, where the king came into the wedding service And he came up to a man that wasn't clothed in a wedding garment and said, Friend, where's your wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Do you remember that horrible comparison in Matthew chapter 22? Well, here they're all clothed because the church is in heaven glorified in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the representation there is by these four and twenty elders. Verse 5, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Lightnings and thunderings and voices like which are described in this book are some of the most impressive and powerful audio-visual effects that we know on earth. A good bolt of lightning close at hand is quite impressive. When it lights up your room brighter than your bedroom's ever been lit by artificial lighting, it's impressive. And then when that canvas rips in your yard because the lightning was close enough for you to hear the ripping sound of lightning, it's impressive and it's coming out of this throne. And the voices that are described as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great multitude, as a trumpet sounding louder and louder, that all combined together is just a reflection of power and glory coming out of the throne of God. But there are seven flames of fire in front of the throne, and this the Holy Spirit tells us what they are, but you still haven't figured it out, because it says they're the seven spirits of God. But I thought the Trinity was three, not nine. Are you going to jump to a Trinity of nine? Because there's seven spirits of God? Or is this a symbolic symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit using the perfect number of seven that is used throughout the book of Revelation based on starting out with seven churches that were to represent all the churches? Because the Spirit spake to each church. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And chapter 1 began with these seven spirits of God. They are the the, the perfect number to represent God's presence everywhere needed at all times. God can reach you by His Spirit just like He could reach the church of Laodicea and the church of Thyatira. We do not have a trinity larger than three. Much more could be said about that, but I preached it a year or two ago when I dealt with the salutation of Revelation chapter 1, which is found in verses 4 through 6. And I preached there and went through all the details of why we don't believe in seven spirits of God literally. There's one spirit of God, but he is symbolically represented as seven because it's the perfect number. He is completely everywhere at all times, especially with his churches. Because remember, what's right around the throne? The 24 elders representing the church. 
and those seven flames of fire are there, there is always plenty of the Holy Spirit for all of his churches and to reveal God's presence to every man. Every one of us is responsible for our relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. Here, it's seven. It's going to be seven horns on the Lamb of God when we get to chapter 5. It's flames of fire. What was that called in Revelation chapter 1 and 2 and 3 but a candlestick? A flame of fire. A candlestick. Because a church, as long as it has a candlestick, is still a church. But when God takes away His candlestick, that's taking away the presence of the Holy Spirit of God and a church then is a corpse. We are in the throne room of God. We've had a door open to us in heaven. And God by His mercy has said, Come up hither. And we have come up and we've seen in the Spirit a throne set, one sitting on the throne, like unto a jasper and sardine stone and a green emerald round a green emerald rainbow round about the throne, four and twenty elders sitting, seven flames of fire, and now verse six, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. So we've got a sea of crystal in front of this throne. What does this sea of crystal mean? It doesn't tell us. But we love the, we love the sight of crystal. We love the clarity and purity and beauty of crystal. And it is a sea of it in front of that throne. When we think of crystal, we think of something that is very pure and beautiful and clear to look upon, which could represent the holiness of God and His separation from everything else except His elect and holy saints, His elect and holy church, and His holy angels. Because remember, the four and twenty elders are around about the throne. But in front of the throne is this great expanse that we would call a sea of crystal. But then, in the throne, around the throne, under the throne, are these four beasts with eyes within and without. What in the world are the four beasts? Now we've got some creatures mentioned in Isaiah chapter 6 called seraphims. We've got some creatures mentioned in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2 called living creatures. Here they're called the four beasts. And you know your pastor loves the four beasts bringing the coronation ceremony to an end with amen in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 14. Here's where you've got to do something that's going to be a little hard for you intellectually. Who are the beasts? Are they just angels? Because angels are separated and kept distinct. We go ahead to chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, and discover something about them. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, And when he had taken the book, that is the Lamb that appeared in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, the four beasts, follow me very closely, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God. Now you've been thinking all along that there are these creatures in heaven with so many eyeballs on them, front and back and inside. They're looking in, they're looking out, they're looking back, they're looking forward. And you know what we just read? They sang the song of the redeemed. 
Now it's a book of signs. There's nobody in this room more disappointed than I am. I thought I had the four B's figured out right well. And I don't want anybody to be disappointed. If they're the redeemed, and they're in the throne, under the throne, and around the throne, I like that. They are very close to the presence of God. And they are between the presence of God and the four and twenty elders, and the angels are on the outside. If there's one thing you want to learn from Revelation chapter 4, it's the circles proceeding out from that throne. Around the throne of the four beasts, then the four and twenty elders, then the angels, then every creature which is in heaven and in the earth and the sea and under the sea. Brethren, and, and you know, there's this great sea or expanse of crystal glass in front of the throne, but the church is right there in the presence of God. That is unbelievable. Amen. That is unbelievable that the infinite, invisible, eternal, independent God of the Bible, Jehovah, I am that I am, has his church right up next to him and the angels are on the outside. Well, then what are these four beasts? Well, they certainly lead the worship of God. Because if you go ahead and read, verse 7 tells us what the four of them look like. They had four different character traits reflected by four different creatures. Verse 8 tells us what they lead in worship, and that's the holiness of God. And verse 9 tells us that when the beasts lead the worship, the four and twenty elders get involved and fall down and worship him that sits on the throne. Now, brethren, the best I can do at this point, since the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us, is to tell you what our fathers in the faith believed. The four and twenty elders represent the entire church of God's redeemed family from Jews and Gentiles, every tongue, nation, tribe, and people. And the four beasts represent the ministry between God and them and them and God. Eyes looking forward to God. Eyes looking back to the church. Eyes within reflecting on themselves and serving and leading in worship. And that's about the best that we can do because the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us any more about the four beasts except they make a lot of noise and it's good noise. It's holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And it's amen to when the worship has taken place. And you know, I'm doing something I've never done in my life to you people. I can't tell you every detail in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 because every detail isn't for us to know or the Holy Spirit would have specified it to us. You know, we're told a few things. The seven flames of fire are the seven spirits of God. And that gets us a little way. But then we've got to do some more work. But when it comes to these four beasts, all I know is that when I go ahead to chapter 5, they sing the song of the redeemed. Grammatically, I cannot make a distinction between the four beasts and the four and twenty elders, and only the four and twenty elders are singing the song of the redeemed. The four beasts are singing it with them. If the four beasts are singing it with them, they've been redeemed. They're a part of us. The angels do not sing the song of the redeemed because Jesus did not die for the angels. So we are in the throne room of God. The beasts are right there, part of the throne and around the throne with God, eyes toward God, eyes toward the church, eyes within themselves with four character traits. This is what our fathers in the faith taught. The lion, God's ministers have been bold. The calf or ox, as as the word is used in other places in the Bible with these four creatures representing the ministry, laboring. Then we have a man for the kindness and tenderness and intelligence. And then we have the eagle, which for its swiftness is known for its flying and lifting up on drafts 
up into the sky toward heaven. All I know is that there are four beasts there and they're glorious and they worship God and they declare His holiness. The Bible doesn't tell us more about the four beasts, but do you know what we what we did learn today is that the four beasts were redeemed. If the four beasts are redeemed, what's the distinction between them and the four and twenty elders? They're all close together, but the four beasts seem to be right up around the throne of God, and when they lead in the worship, the four and twenty elders fall down in worship. And so our fathers in the faith have taken that position on the four beasts. Listen. The closer that the four beasts and the elders can get to the throne of God, the better Revelation chapter 4 should be to us. Amen. Amen. Instead of worrying about the details of, can I name the four and twenty elders, instead of doing that, just think about how close they are to the throne of God. Look what it says about the four beasts in verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Now a sea is a large expanse of something. But in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, generally known for boldness and authority and victory in the Bible. And the second beast like a calf. In Ezekiel it's called an ox for labor. And the third beast had a face as a man for intelligence and kindness. That's how a man is used in prophetic language. Like when a spirit of man was given to it, to the, Nebu- to the Babylonian Empire in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 4. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle known for its speed in obeying God and lifting itself up toward heaven. And the four beasts, each of them had six wings about them, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying... They're continually given to one practice, the worship of God, holy, 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 Lord, God, Almighty, which was and is and is to come. So they're engaged in worship all the time. That is their work, that is their place, and that is their role. And when these beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, and then they have something to say themselves. In that 11th verse, remember, the beasts and the elders were redeemed. So it's the, it's the whole family of God broken into two segments of some sort that God is trying to convey to us. And when the four beasts lead, the 24 throw their crowns down and they worship. And they follow. And if you go through the whole book of Revelation and look for 24 elders and you look for four beasts, you're always going to find them together. Not always. Usually, you will find the two of them together. Holy, holy, holy. What is the message that should come out of every pulpit? The holiness of God. You know, some would say that it should be the love of God because it says in 1 John that God is love. But before it says God is love in 1 John chapters 3 through 5, it says in chapter 1, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Holiness is what makes God's worship beautiful. In the Old Testament, how many times does it say, in the beauty of holiness? And so these beasts, and it doesn't really even matter how specific we get about them, they're redeemed, they say they're redeemed, but they're proclaiming the holiness of God, and they are right around the throne. And so are the four and twenty elders. If there's one thing I want us to appreciate, it is the staggered distance from the throne of God 
that the angels and all other creatures are, and that expanse of the sea of crystal, and the four and twenty have their seats right around the throne of God. Thank you, Lord, for saving us and adopting us as his own children. The angels are not his children, but we are his children. And so the, the worship goes forth in verse 8. The holiness of God and the eternal nature of God and the omnipotent power of God in the words, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when the beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, then the four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him, that liveth forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the Lord. Whatever you can achieve, but better than that, whatever the Lord gives you, a crown of glory, a crown of righteousness, a crown of life, these four and twenty elders representing the whole church, when they're in the presence of God and hearing His holiness, His omnipotence, and His eternal nature proclaimed, they cast their crowns on the floor and they hit the deck before the Lord. And that is the attitude that we ought to have whenever we come near the presence of God. And that is to lift Him up and put ourselves down, even the things that He has given us, like our crowns of glory and of, or of life or of righteousness, and to cast them before the Lord and to worship Him that liveth forever and ever. We are held in the balance by the mind and purpose and decrees of God. If He were to withdraw His decrees from us, we would go out of existence so quickly. We are sustained. We are dependent. We are helped. We are upheld. We have an origin. Our God is independent. He is I am that I am. We are what God made me. And what God blessed me with. And everything that is evil in the equation of what we have or are is our fault, not His. Every good thing that we have comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow, of turning. And the four and twenty fall down before Him on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever. They cast their crowns and they say, because they recognize, and in heaven we will recognize this, can we learn to recognize it now? Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Who gave it to Him? The four beasts gave Him glory and honor and power in verse, and thanks, in verse nine, And here, the four and twenty elders are saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive that kind of praise and worship on this basis. For Thou hast created all things. And throughout the Bible, God is worthy of being worshipped on the basis of having created all things. God, who made the worlds. God, who created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, is worthy of worship. So it begins with creation. Chapter 4 does not have salvation in it. Chapter 5 does not speak of creation as much as it does of salvation. Because we're twice the Lord's. But chapter 4 is us being His by creation. Chapter 5 is us being His by redemption. And that distinction is made there in these two views. Chapter 4 is God in glory. Chapter 5 is Christ in glory at His coronation as our Savior. But if you want to learn a worldview, and if you want to get a perspective for your life, it is Revelation 4.11 and Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. Here, 
Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. As a tall brother in our church likes to pray, there's two ways that we can give God glory, isn't there? Actively, passively. He will get glory. He will get pleasure out of every one of us. I want to give it to Him actively. Thou art worthy. Is He worthy to you? Have I corrupted the chapter too much for Him to be worthy to you? Do you see Him from Isaiah 6? I want you to see what is actually here. The invisible, independent, immortal, eternal, omnipotent God sitting on His throne with the church right up next to Him. And the four beasts right up next to Him. The redeemed family of God. However, He's trying to represent them to us. It's right up next to Him. And the angels are on the outside. No wonder it says they want to look in to these things. How in the world can us men from this little planet have come up and been promoted above them around the throne of God? We're going to get to the reason for that in chapter 5. But is He worthy to you to receive all the glory and the honor and the power? Do you understand that He created you for His pleasure? That no matter what happens in your life, the negative things that happen in your life, even when they are caused by our sinfulness, they are for the pleasure of God. And He will get pleasure, praise, and glory out of all of it. Yea, even the wicked in the day of evil. Does the Bible say in Psalm 76 and verse 10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. So whatever wrath is not restrained works to the praise of God, works to the pleasure of God, works to the glory of God. When the smoke of their torment ascends up into heaven forever, is it going to be the praise, pleasure, and glory of God? Amen. Amen. Because they are vessels of honor. I mean, vessels of dishonor and vessels of wrath for the display of God's power and wrath on them. But, oh, brethren, what is His plan for us? What pleasure does He get from us? Making us joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ, putting us right next to His throne, inside the angel hosts of heaven. There we are, worshiping God. Having four beasts, symbolizing leaders in worship, and us falling on our faces before the throne of God, casting our crowns. Lord, it's not of me. There's nothing good that I have done. Nothing in my hands I bring in a song we sing, but simply to thy cross I cling. All the glory is the Lord's. He created us and he saved us for us to know him. Do you know him? You can have a vision of God if you choose to have a vision of him. If you're one of His saved children, He wants to reveal Himself to you. He created you and saved you for that purpose. How did Moses get a vision of God? He asked for it. He prayed for it. He said, show me thy glory. And God showed him His glory. What did Asaph do? He went into the church in Psalm 73. He went into the sanctuary, and that's where he saw God. What did John do? Chapter 1, verse 10, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
if we, if you prepare for the worship of God and cut out the world and make your inputs of a spiritual sort and you come into this place looking to meet God, you can meet God in His sanctuary through His Word and through the songs that we sing. They're singing songs in heaven. If you want to be like those that are in heaven, then you're worshiping Him for the great attributes of His nature, like His sovereign dominion over the universe, like His holiness, like His eternal nature, like His omnipotence. These things are all implied in the words, Lord God Almighty, which was, which is, which is to come, His eternal nature. To glory in those things, they're revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. I'm thankful that once upon a time, not in the year that King Isaiah died, but in the year that I was 19, I saw Isaiah 6, and I didn't know that it was in the Bible. It had never struck me as being in the Bible, though I am sure I had read it. But I saw Isaiah 6. I saw also the Lord. And His throne was high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. And the house was filled with smoke, and the posts of the house moved at the voice of Him that spoke. And I love that God. Do you love that God today? We get so wrapped up. The world wants to jam stuff into our eyeballs all the time. So the lust of the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of our flesh, the pride of life is pulling us away and pulling us to and fro. And we have got to take the time to ask God, show me thy glory, to go into his church prepared, to be in the spirit on the Lord's day, to sing about it, and to look into his word at those places where the veil is pulled back. And we get inside for a little glimpse. Do you know why God didn't show you any more than what we just read about of His glory? Because you couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. So it's some of these vague descriptions under similitudes because we can't handle it. We're going to need to be glorified before He reveals a little bit more to us. But because we're not God, we're never going to see all there is to God. He's inexhaustible. He's infinite. He's our Father in heaven. And do you know where He wants us? For eternity, right up next to Him. Praise His glorious name.